Welcome to the Arise podcast with Danielle Castillejo and Maggie Hemphill. Conversations around faith, race, justice, gender, and healing. This is part one of a candid and nuanced conversation discussing therapeutic spaces to engage the ongoing effects of purity culture in our society. Our guests are Angie Hong, worship leader, writer, and speaker based out of North Carolina, where she got her Master's in Divinity from Duke University. Also joining us are returning guests, somatic psychotherapist Jenny McGrath and trauma therapist Abby Wong Hefter. You'll find in the show notes a link to the March 2021 article that Angie wrote for The Atlantic called The Flaw at the Center of Purity Culture that we will be discussing throughout the conversation, including the lasting effects of the article, how complex and layered it is to address purity culture, and the great need for therapeutic spaces to heal from and process through the effects of purity culture. We jump into the conversation with Abby telling Angie how the article resonated with her. Where that intersects with being um, an Asian American woman. So it just, something in me really settled and felt like a resonance that, again, I don't get to experience very often. So I'm really appreciative for you to bring your voice there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate those words. Yeah. I I wondered like um I wondered if we if when we jump in I I just remember what you said as we jump into the conversation just now you said I am always surprised at the longevity of the article. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that came to my mind immediately when you said that is that the trauma is still unresolved. Yeah. Yes. And so I don't, I haven't really seen a space where I've seen a collective healing practice across, across that particular community or across the country that's really addressed what you wrote about. Yeah, yeah, we did talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hope that you're the workshop that you're planning, right? It's coming up soon, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I really hope that that can be a space where this can be sort of engaged a little bit more. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm immediately curious when, you, when you're speaking to the longevity of the article, like how have people been interacting with you? Um, what are this, are, are there themes to what you hear from, from people in their experience of what they read? Um, well, I heard from, after the article was done, I kind of thought, okay, now I can take a breath and like sort of, you know, um, continue to like grieve and heal with different communities and people that I know and friends. Um, but after the article came out, I got a whole bunch of messages like all over from all over the world. And um, some people were saying, oh, this is, this is, this is just like my story. Like I have a story just like this. Um, and then there were other people that said, you know, let me tell you my actual story. So then I, I, I've read a lot of stories and then um, some people reached out and they said, here's my story and here's all the people <laughs> like they, they were just unleashing uh, their experiences. And I think what that told me is that um, like what you said, Abby, about, you know, things kind of clicking and, and things sort of settling Oh, oh my gosh, like I, I didn't realize that there are all these like different layers and dynamics and realizing that and not having a place or not realizing that there was a place that they could turn to, to process th- that information um, 
that's sort of what they, that's sort of what these sort of reach outs told me, like these DMs that I got. It was just like, oh man, there must be some sort of, there must be some sort of absence or, or something that people either were looking for and couldn't find or never knew that they were looking for and somehow stumbled across this article. And it just sort of sparked all these memories and stories and experiences that, that um, they came into awareness of. So I think, yeah, the, the longevity piece, um, I think people still, you know, of course, um, what Danielle said about things not feeling resolved. Um, I think it's also um, not finding places for that healing or that not finding places for those things to be processed and let out in a, in a very um, nuanced way, you know, sort of addressing um, race and culture, um, you know, and, and I, I mean, I am married to a psychiatrist. So, so I mean, like healing is healing. I understand that. And, um, and, but I, I also think that there are nuances that can be named and there's larger systemic things at play. Like for instance, women, you know, just understanding how system systemically things uh, are not as gender neutral as, you know, society would want to believe. And so things disproportionately affect women and um, things happen to women and their bodies. And I think that that sort of nuance can be applied to things like race and culture too, um, that can be sort of named as not just an individual problem, but as a, some, that names a larger thing going on in the, in the atmosphere. Um, yeah, and, and I think that it's easy to, I'm sort of rambling, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's easy. Y'all are all therapists. You're really, really great listeners just like off the bat. So, <laughs> but um, just, I don't know, just knowing that, hey, it, yes, there's individual responses to how, how things have happened to you and your family members and your, you know, your experiences growing up, but there's also this like wider landscape of race and how that works out. And um, and how it all sort of works together um, and that healing can look individual, but also can look um, at sort of like larger things too. Um, and yeah, so I think that's, that's a little bit of what my article touched on. And um, in Danielle's group, I was like, these are all the layers that this is, this, these are all the layers that I was slowly like sort of uh uncovering in the writing of this piece and I went through like almost like paragraph by paragraph <laughs> on how all those things broke down because I there was a lot going into those that piece a lot of those layers that I tried to touch on I I think for me I was really struck by um like you're saying the complexity of the nuance and kind of in my head after reading it uh, several times I felt like uh, maybe purity culture needs to be labeled spiritual abuse and sexual abuse because of how um, scripture gets weaponized, how there's par uh, power dynamics at play, um, and then also how it's it's an attack on bodies and how you know that is traumatized and how we carry that with us. And so like, and and then also the race piece, and it just felt like and 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 <laughs> kept adding in yeah. uh, to where like. Um, 
yeah, I think I, I maybe didn't ever think of naming it spiritual abuse or sexual abuse, but that is literally what I came away from reading your article being like, wow, the purity culture, good intentioned as it was, was so abusive on a variety of levels, like you're talking about the layers. And so I think uh, kind of acknowledging what Danielle said about the trauma is still unresolved. The effects of, of purity culture are still here. Um, and not just spiritually, but also in our bodies, in our sexualities, in the way we perceive ourselves as women, the uh, way we perceive ourselves in our, our, our race or ethnic identity. And so just like kind of seeing how much of a rat's nest it is, or, or like a, you know, a ball of yarn that's just been un, unspun and then just thrown back together in a big pile, and how it's so messy. Um, so I appreciate you kind of naming like there hasn't been a clear space or place to process. And even if there is, it is so layered and complex that it, it feels like it would be really hard to even start. Mm. Do you, when you, in, with your clients and these groups, do you kind of start out talking and unpacking sort of purity culture? And then does it, does it kind of, uh, like the conclusion would be like, this is actually a like spiritual sexual abuse. Like, do you kind of like frame it in that way that that's like sort of the arrival point or um, like at what point do you, because I'm imagining that for a lot of women, these things are so slippery, right? They're really hard to detect um, because they're part of your your spiritual formation. And so disentangling that I imagine is really, really tough work and feels really, um, can feel really daunting and very scary. So to, to come out of the gate and say like, hey, you've been spiritually abused <laughs> might be a little much to process, but like healing from purity culture or like processing through purity culture or something like that. Um, is that kind of, yeah, like how do y'all, reframe that to kind of be like, hey, actually, this is like really abusive. <laughs> this is like super toxic, abusive. Um, yeah, how, how do y'all sort of like help people through that? I, I don't generally have folks start with me even aware mm -hmm. that they are still in the midst of spiritual and sexual abuse or that purity culture has informed so much of their approach to themselves, um, mm -hmm. their relationships. So they'll come to me because they want to address childhood sexual abuse, um, or they come to me because, well, I work, I work specifically with um, transracially adopted adults. And a lot of those stories are ones where there's that like, just such deep hunger for belonging. And that's such a huge mm. part of their story that I think that there's been this false narrative that purity culture will give you belonging. Um, and so it's in the unpacking of what they've suffered that we start to recognize like that this is the lens you've seen how to be good and, go and godly yeah. and, and starting to even recognize what's been so toxic that they've ingested. Wow. That is a lot. I mean, does it, so, um, can I, can I ask more questions? <laughs> so do when, when you start to unpack that, is it, is that something that they, is that hard for people to admit? Like, is that hard for people to like digest that information? Cause I imagine that would feel 
I don't know. Is that hard? <laughs> I don't want to hog this space, Jenny. You should you should talk. Yeah, people chime in. Hey, I like it. Please enlighten me. <laughs> I, I I I have thoughts, but I'd love to hear if you have an answer to that, Abby. Yeah, I think it. I think like most traumas to begin to land on a realization, like invites the opportunity to grief, but, but it is like encountering again, I think these intersections of spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, um, racism. I think that that is a huge mountain to like look at and go, Oh, oh my gosh, this is shaped every aspect of my life so really really difficult to encounter and it, i think it takes a lot of being gentle and slow and persistent in like we we have to keep challenging this thing that you just take as truth like capital t truth yeah i'm thinking of some some different people i've worked with where the number of times they reference that in order to know what is truth for themselves, they, they go back to their white male pastor as like, well, and then I talk to him about this thing I'm trying to figure out for myself. And so I'll pause and be like, well, what do you think? Mm. Well, or I noticed that you keep referencing this man. What, what would it be to come to some of those? What do you have thoughts before you go to him? So mm. yeah, there's just like, these automatic responses that I want to say, like, I'm going to use a word that might be controversial, but I think have been programmed into us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Abby, when you just said that, um, I'm thinking that I work primarily with Latino, Latina, Latinx clients, and often that coming from a dominant faith community experience, like I would say like a white faith community experience where their invitation into faith was actually uh, what part of the requirement to join Christianity was to become white from the way they dress as female, male, other to the way they practice faith, to their engagement with their families of origin, to cutting off their families of origin, to who they marry. So in order to get to even sometimes to sexual abuse and name that, if it happened in their family origin context is so such a delicate work in a sense of not like delicate because they're delicate, but how do you honor the cultural context that they come from and begin to name where they've created new quote unquote family bonds as, as an abuse, as an abuse of power and abusive system. It's get, it, it gets me thinking along that lines of like the immigrant church, right? Where a lot of like second gen and third, you know, grow up and um, how there is this sort of like honoring of the culture and a protection of the culture because that's what it means to be Asian, Latina, like even, you know, black. And I think that, I think it's really hard for a person that is not of that culture to tell you or to ask questions around it, right? Out of something that seems so fixed and so so static, almost like it doesn't have any sort of um, like a, a life of its own, right? So, so a lot of, um, this has been talked about a lot, but in, in a lot of Asian churches, the, 
the the people our parents immigrated and the you know completely missed out on the women's movement for instance in korea the women's movement in korea was like around the 90s and a lot of our parents had already moved here and like established lives here and so that sort of patriarchal element um anti-feminist sort of like movement um that has stayed in churches and has been like the equivalent of being korean right so if you're korean you're like anti-woman in church like anti-leadership all those things and things in in korea have changed you know so it's like it's almost like it, it's um been like concretized and like really sealed with like the holy spirit this god this is this is what it means to be holy and it's so hard to like really mess with that and i think that's another thing aspect of this piece is that like i kind of mess with it you know like as a korean and i think i think i mean i i think that it kind of opened doors for people to actually like maybe yeah like maybe hear hear it out like hear out that things are not congruent with how things are landing on their bodies or or their stories and how it's not really you know, even it's not even really leading to life. It's leading to like burnout and like being used and being abused. Um, and I, yeah, so such a complicated, very layered thing. And um, yeah, yeah. I, I have another question for y'all. <laughs> um, how do y'all? kind of, I, I talk about transcendence in the piece a little bit um, and the whole separating of your body and soul. Um, and there is there is a racism component and a history behind that. But how have y'all seen that in your practice uh, with, your, with, your, um, with your clients? And like, what are some ways that you kind of piece, try to piece things back together in a way that feels like good. So, um, so Abby, you mentioned like, just even questioning like, Hey, how do you feel like just you before you run off to the authority figure with all your thoughts? Right. So like, how do y'all deal with like that idea of holy sort of transcendence? Like it's your soul that matters and nothing else. Yeah, I think for me, I work primarily with cisgender white women. And so, um, you know, kind of tying back to your first question and then answering this, I really appreciate Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers um, term religious sexual shame. And I find that that helps me give a framework to my clients um, that ends up trickling into gender performance, white performance, and, and kind of the ideas of what it means to quote unquote, be a white woman. And so a lot of my work with clients is um, what I call somatic psychotherapy. And so engaging the body mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes even going all the way back to talking about Plato and like the split of the soul and the body. And so I really love um, Resma Menachem calling our vagus nerve, our soul nerve. Um, mm -hmm. And so it really blends well with, um, you know, I see my job as not uh, denying white privilege um, and not denying the way in which like race operates and whiteness operates mm -hmm. and 
holding what it means to um, kind of emancipate myself, my clients emancipating themselves from being white um, and really holding that we also have a history that predates white supremacy, that predates Christian supremacy. And how do we um, like hold that white cisgender women are often propped up in purity culture and are kind of the pinnacle of it and have a lot of access to power and privilege and are dehumanized in that system. Um, and so kind of holding the both and as an invitation back to body and back to humanity. That's great. Angie, it's funny because what comes to mind is actually not the work I do with my clients, but the work that I'm doing with myself. Um, <laughs> help. Um, I, I see a, um, I'll call her a coach um, who specializes in um, what it means to maybe work towards liberation from um, white Christian institutions. Um, and a lot of the work she does with me is around identifying where I overfunction. And I think that that idea of the soul, um, you being transcendent is of like, is what we are really trying to attain um, and debunking that and mm. like believing in the wisdom and the goodness of our bodies um, mm. that mm. it could even be the place in which the spirit speaks um, because it is so antithesis to, I think the space where a lot of us who grew up in the evan white evangelical church um, mm really were again taught to abhor, like um, my body leads others, specifically teenage boys to yeah. sin. Um, my body needs to look a certain way and fit a certain mm -hmm. size and be a certain color. And um, it needs to be small. And I mean, small in like size, but also in the way that I move through the world. Um, mm -hmm. I need to not take up a lot of space and I need to not be demonstrative with my gestures. Um, so I think I've, I've had to do work around the places where I have not let my body be my wisdom. And I think if we let our bodies be our wisdom and we get to encourage that in the people we work with, then I actually think they, they yell no a lot. <laughs> <laughs> They yell no. <laughs> wow. That's very powerful. I mean, that sounds like it'd be very powerful to even be in a room like that, like where you just hear a person just yell out no. That's great. I love that. Abby and I have been leading this group for the first time, um, trauma care for women of color, racial trauma care. Yeah. And one thing I was, I've told Abby many times as we've led the group, like we're the facilitators and quote unquote, um, trained to label ourselves as experts, you know, from the white therapeutic standpoint or to know the answer to things. And I can't tell you how many times we've walked into group open-handed and our experience, or I'll speak for me, Abby, but my experience is so close to a participant in the group. 
and their emotional expression feels so free in the group experience that when I leave the group experience, I'm often washed over with a wave of grief and at the same time, excitement to tell Abby, like, I felt all of this. (laughs) I resonated with all of this. And I think even though I know it's, it's come week after week in the group, I still found myself surprised at the number of bits out of people's stories or the, even the way, um, you know, Latinas express anger or emotion, like how I was just like cheering from the inside Mm -hmm. and, and how, and it challenged me because trained as like in the white therapeutic constants, you know, like context, you're supposed to hold your feelings here and then metabolize them. And then like, like give them back to the group, but not take up too much space. So you know, this, this complex, like, how do you hold that in a body that wants to emote, you know, Mm. and what's appropriate. So I, I think processing that group experience from the quote unquote facilitator standpoint, I found myself questioning all those norms too. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, Abby, don't want to speak for you, but that's how I felt. Oh no, it's ditto. (laughs) There's been times where I, where I literally have been like, you are not a participant. So you don't get to share your story right now, but it's like, and just, it does feel really freeing actually to, to be in a space that, that holds that kind of resonance. Mm. Angie, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, what was it like for you to receive? I mean, I'm imagining you got a lot of DMs. Um, I'm also imagining they weren't all kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that's just hold, it's a holding a lot. And I'm curious what that was like for you. Um, it was really, it was a lot. I think that whole year, I'm, the whole, everything that happened a year ago, um, and even a little bit before that, because the anti-Asian like elements, um, it was a lot for, it was a lot for um, most people that I knew that were Asian, especially Asian women. And then when this thing happened, I think there was some sort of a break. I don't know. Um, I feel like a lot of us were, um, dealing with it in very different ways, like both healthy and and unhealthy. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of reaction. There's a lot of, you know, for a lot of people, this is the first time, um, that they have really grappled with race or come to a reckoning with their racial identities, um, because it had been so bypassed by my identities in Christ, or, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm doing well, like Asians are doing well. Um, and so I think all that sort of collided at this moment in Atlanta. And, um, and so I don't, I don't know. I think, um, I got a whole range of things. I was not surprised. Um, and I've been doing a lot of stuff around race for a while. So I, I anticipated that this, this kind of would happen all at the same time. Um, I, I didn't, you know, know how intense it would be, but it was very intense. And, um, thankfully I have a really great 
group of friends and I had a few professors because this was my last semester in, in seminary that this happened. And so I had a few good professors that reached out and wanted to talk. Um, and there was a lot of space and room for me to like really process with uh, my good friends. So I had, at that point in time, I had community. Um, I also had a fair amount of folks that were trying to um, do this like uh, trauma bonding, you know, and that I had to really um, be mindful to um, not, yeah, to keep firm boundaries. I don't know how to quite explain it, but I, 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 there were a lot of people who reached out to me and they wanted this sort of like bond, you know, because they shared the same story or like, it's like I had read their mind or something and, and they wanted this like closeness. And, um, there are a lot of people who assume that. So if anything, that was sort of the hard thing was just people assuming the sort of closeness. Um, when I had like never met them before, we had never had a conversation before, but because I wrote something that like was so personal to them, they felt like they, they, they had that with me. I don't know. Um, so there's that. And then sort of like fallout from that when I kind of had to place a little bit of boundaries, like we actually don't know each other and I don't feel comfortable doing this. And then it was those things. And then the haters, um, I actually didn't get a lot of haters and the ones that did, I would, I, I could tell they either weren't real people, you know, like they were maybe bots or something, or uh, these like white men who um, were trying to theologically poke holes in it. And I was like, listen, I'm in school right now. You can't do this. Like, I was just like, no, it ain't happening. I don't even know what your background is, but no, no, I, I know my stuff right now. So um, that didn't really affect me as much because I, I think at that moment, I wanted to really turn care towards like the community, like the, the people who were affected. And I didn't really care about anybody else. I didn't want to like hold space for anybody else in that moment. Um, yeah. And like with the, with the white women who reached out to me, because a lot of white women really did reach out to me uh, who really identified with the piece as well. Um, I, you know, I thanked them for sharing their stories, but I think I had the intention of really caring about like a more nuanced, you know, um, story and, and people, um, who had never really like explored this or, or were new or, you know, these things were fresh. So, um, I think that was a really good way for me to kind of parse through all these dynamics going on was like keeping the priority of, the communities that I want to care for, that I want to turn and care for, you know, um, and like helping to resource them or like share information or hear out their stories and either like learn to like, you know, point them to a resource or a book or something or, or, or a different person. But, um, but yeah, and, and everybody else was just sort of like, uh, you know, very low on the, on the priority list. Because mind you, like I, at the same time, we, I am quarantining, I'm, I'm under quarantine, I'm taking classes, I was almost in like finals time, final paper mode, and I was homeschooling my two kids at home, they're eight and 10, they're, they were in um, second and fifth grade last year, and I was taking all of their classes too, I was teaching them, so there's only, you know, so much I can fit in a day, <laughs> you know? 
So that's kind of how I kind of weeded out the, the haters. <laughs> it doesn't even sound necessarily like the haters were the ones that were difficult. It's the ones that you could identify they need so much care and they, and it sounds like they don't know where to go. Yeah, I think I was really frustrated by that, Abby. I mean, um, Daniel knows this, but there's a lot of people that were like, oh my gosh, like try reporting to this, like tell people that they can tell their stories here or report here safely. And I said, listen, um, I, I really appreciate it. How do they nuance these things? Like I, I tried to do in this piece because that's something that is missing that a lot of these organizations are run by like white men or women and, you know, they're sort of like universalizing, you know, what the healing is entailing and at least a little bit of nuance, you know, or at least staff that can hear it out. And a lot of them were like, oh, you know, we're admittedly, we're, we're very white. We can't, you know, we haven't gone down there, but we're happy to do X, Y, Z. And I just said, I, I don't know if I feel comfortable, uh, rec you know, recommending you to some of these folks that are reaching out to me. That was really frustrating. Um, and I told Danielle about that uh, in, the, in that group. I was just like, I couldn't find really, really anybody um, at that moment. And that was really, that was, that was tough to see, you know, gotta say. But y'all are changing that, right? <laughs> um, which is good, which is really, really great. I think um, when I was in school, um, I took a few semesters of Asian American theology, and then I took de decoloniality um, as thesis. And the ways that they were able to nuance um, sort of theological perspectives and even psych psychological uh, perspectives of, of sort of God and Christianity and um, I think was very refreshing to me, like learning about, you know, like what even constitutes an authentic sort of Asian identity, you know, because those are uh, what Abby was referring to about belonging. I mean, that is something that I hear a lot of biracial folks say, and, um, and even the larger context of race, like how Asians fit in because they kind of don't fit in. Um, that sense of wanting to belong is like such a, a theme. It's like such a theme, right? So like understanding belonging as, as Asian American, like what is Asian American enough? What even is an Asian American? Um, how do some of our like cultural backgrounds and race backgrounds and being in liminal spaces relate to our faith as, and relates to Jesus as being like in a liminal place himself and how can we sort of like latch on and identify with those things um, and bring more like fullness to how we understand God instead of it being like we're not good enough we're good enough to be honorary whites but we're not white and we're not like people of color enough we're not oppressed enough to be people of color so where do we fit? And, and I mean, those sort of nuances were very like life-giving to me. They're very generative. I, I gained a lot of insight. Um, I gained a lot of insight on how that all sort of these racial dynamics sort of support white supremacy. And how do you like de-link de yourself from that? And purity culture is like a huge part of that, you know, um, even thinking about like 
the concept of purity <laughs> being white and, and everybody else just not being able to, there's just no way we can be white. And so, um, yeah, so that was really refreshing to me. And in terms of like healing, I feel like healing can also have these like nuanced sort of things that can add to people's narrative as well. And that's something that I hope to see more of like in the uh, healing sort of landscape as like therapy has really, you know, seen a, a dramatic rise um, for understandably. That's something that I hope to see. And I, and I wonder if y'all are seeing it more and more too, like people wanting to understand things in a very nuanced way, either as women or what, you know, Jenny, what you said about white women was, that was amazing. Um, yeah, like, do y'all see more of a desire around that? Um, yeah, I can speak to that. I, I feel like I, I do, um, I feel very fortunate. I'm part of a collective of scholars and artists all looking very deep at purity culture um, and its intersections with racism and sexism. And so, um, what is that it, called? It's called the Purity Culture Collective. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and so we um, have just been, and I can send you resources for it because we're also, the founders are working on compiling um, resources that are safe and that are nuanced for folks wanting care around what they experienced. I think um, both kind of just where folks are in life after the 90s and kind of the height of the purity movement. Um, I think there's been just kind of an age awakening. And then I think just with our political climate, there are a lot of folks realizing how intersected, um, you know, the purity culture movement in the 90s is with a really long history of racism and sexism. And as you named, like these binary categories of who gets to be pure um, and who is quote unquote worth protecting and who is innocent and who isn't um, and how those are always going to be ingrained and entangled with our history of racism and sexism in this country. Um, and so I feel hopeful um, that there are more and more voices and folks engaging this really like as Maggie said is like this tangled web of a lot of oppressive and normative structures around gender and sex and race. Wow are y'all Christian therapists like is there or is it are y'all like believers but like therapists? I, I don't know the difference to be honest, <laughs> I don't think I've had, I've had one Christian therapist my whole entire life, but the rest have not been overtly Christian. It's, a, it's an important distinction, I think. Um, yeah. One, because I think a, a lot of um, what quote unquote Christian therapists um, or Christian ca counselors mm -hmm. um, may not actually be mental health specialists um and they're gonna i in my experience with particularly clients who previously saw christian counselors is that giving scripture was a primary way of 
engagement. Um, my website says nothing about um, my my faith or my um, my worldview in that way. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of people find me through the various places I've worked, um, mm -hmm. which are all Christian. So I have a lot of clients who are Christians. Um, and I, I also think um, this could go down a long rabbit trail, but I try to be really careful of even creating um, an expected curiosity um, with, with my Christian clients. Cause I think it, we're so quick with certain language to, to just make very big assumptions that we're speaking the same language or that we have the same understanding. Um, and that has felt, that's felt somewhat dangerous of, um, if, if I end up just like getting on that train and going with someone and then realizing, oh, I actually could be joining something that hasn't been helpful for you. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it feels like reading the individual um, to determine like how that's brought into the work. Oh, yeah. Got you, guys. Yeah, what about y'all? I don't consider myself a Christian therapist. Um, I'm a licensed mental health counselor um, and would just uh, echo everything that Abby shared. Um, and I think part of that has been my own journey and process of deconstructing um, and kind of untangling the history of white supremacy with Christian supremacy. Um, and so I deeply honor the various faiths um, or religious or non-religious um, backgrounds and presence that my clients come in with. Um, and I and I just close as part of my intake form. Part of what we'll be addressing is that, um, you know, my thought and my bias is that we aren't just like radical free agents, but even our theologies and our psychologies are deeply impacted by all of these social issues that we're talking about. And so even as part of my role in therapy, I see it as a necessity to engage um, the social impacts and the collective stories in which my clients are a part of or have been a part of right. as part of their journey. This is hard work, y'all. I don't like, oh my goodness, God bless you. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> That would be, that would just be so hard. I mean, yeah, I don't, wow. Um, yeah, I think, can I, can I ask, like, what are some things that y'all are seeing now with some of your clients around like their bodies? Is it kind of the same? I think, um, I think just younger folks, when I talk to younger folks, um, about some of these things relating to body, like, it's not, I don't know, maybe, maybe, um, this is sort of what I'm seeing, but it may not be what you're seeing, <clears throat> but I get this almost like the opposite end, like your body just sort of, it doesn't matter in that you can just kind of let it do whatever it wants. And, um, and I don't know, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say like in a liberative kind of way, but more of like a transactional kind of way in a sense. And I don't know 
it, have y'all been seeing more of that with like younger generations of folks or um, yeah, like how, how people relate to their bodies now versus like in sort of like nineties purity culture, which is like shameful and all, you know, trying to deny its existence almost. I don't work with, um, I haven't in a long time worked with younger, I mean, 20 somethings, but going all the way down to like adolescence, because I knew that as I became a parent of one, (laughs) (laughs) but I can say from, from hanging out and being around, um, high schoolers because of being a mom of one, um, I'm experiencing a lot of like, um, I'm going to debunk what your generation has done. Mm -hmm. Um, so things don't mean the same thing that they did for you. Um, if I wear something where you can see my breasts, Mm -hmm. that's not me trying to, to even try and get male attention. Mm -hmm. Um, this is just my expression. So, Mm -hmm. um, that's on like very much it. That's on them. I don't have to worry about them. I get to do whatever I want to, uh-huh. um, which I think, I think part of the process for me in like deconstructing and recognizing the toxicity of purity culture is now I'm having to like rethink all of these things that were just so normalized. So I'm like, I still have really strong reactions to, um, well, in this case, like certain clothing. And I have to, I have to like re-examine that and go, what's that about? And what, what is lingering that may actually not be helpful? Um, so I don't know where, I don't know where I land yet, but there's still, yeah, there's a lot of, at least, at least with the teens that I'm around, there's a lot of like, we get to do our own thing. (laughs) Yeah, I experienced that. And I also experienced there's still a lot of hatefulness, I think, in the context of middle school and high school. And in some cases, it's fairly overt. And then in other cases, it feels very like covert almost. So like, I think even because I have four kids and three are in either, you know, middle school or high school, just I growing up rarely had a conversation with my family about bodies in any Mm. form, in any form. Um, So I have a lot of conversations about bodies and am challenged constantly by what they think or what they're going to say. And um, Jenny was with me this past weekend and Estella had a lot of thoughts and opinions, my 12 year old, and she felt free to share them all. And so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she just, it, it surprised me. It's not that I don't disagree with my kids necessarily, but like Jenny said, I think I find myself surprised at the freedom with which they move to express themselves or even their, or the thoughts they can try on. Mm-hmm. And I never had that freedom growing up to even try on a thought um, and, and see if that meshed with faith or not. I never even had that chance. It was just like, don't think that. And then if yeah. it came, then I immediately as a child or a teenager felt shamed. Whereas my kid is trying on the thought I'm the, I'm processing my younger self and my daughter's younger self. And then trying to be like, well, where the heck am I as an adult? Like, 
trying to reorient. So yeah, that's how I think that's just a little bit of my experience. It, it makes me think of, uh, if I can paraphrase, uh, Glennon Doyle from her book was sharing that someone asked her, like, why does it seem like everyone is gay all of a sudden? <laughs> and she was like, well, I don't think that being gay is contagious. Yeah. I think that being free is. And mm. I think that there really is like this, um, this swing that feels necessary of the pendulum mm. of like, there was so much oppression and so much control that now I think there are, there's so much of like, that didn't work. Um, so how do we learn how to be in our bodies in ways that I think create a lot of um, exploration and, and freedom? Um, yeah. I, yeah, I also don't work with children or adolescents. Um, and so the folks that I work with are, are in that generation where they're seeing this freedom and being like, how do I get there? Cause I still can't even like, wear a v-neck you know or like you know how do oh. I want to be able to feel more free in my body and all of these messages come in when I see the freedom that others might be exploring or experimenting with I see yeah yeah that's great how do I get there that's that's amazing <laughs> Angie, I watch, like, I, I, I think I continually watching you process as we're talking, I'm wondering like what you're thinking or feeling. No, oh, no. Um, I think this is so good. I think, um, I think this gives me a lot of hope actually, <laughs> because I do, I don't know. I, I, I can kind of make ties in a more like theological sense. Right. So like, if the ways that we relate in this like whole purity culture and and churches are sort of like freaking out right now about why there's there's why people don't don't uh, choose to be a part of their communities anymore and they're opting out and they don't they find these sorts of dynamics like super um, just almost meaningless like what does it all mean I don't you know. Um, after pandemic, I don't, I don't want to go back because um, I don't really need this. And realizing um, this whole like, <clears throat> yeah, like not being able to relate to people in a in a meaningful way. And then there's like the purity. I don't know. I'm trying to put it all together because it does feel like if we if we if we ignore this or if we just say oh yeah, that's just, this is just a conversation meant for like super hurt people, but we don't get like the rest of everybody involved in this conversation, right? I feel like it will continue to just sort of be very um, anemic, like just not really understood except for by a few, like this like minority group of people who care about it because they were affected, but like really we're all affected. And so like, how do you even like, approach that you know with at a at a church that has just an all-male staff or like that's been you know propagating these things or perpetuating these things just it's a really it's a tough task um for sure and then when it comes to women of color even more so because there's just a lot more protections uh, over the the men and like keeping the culture static so there's a lot of unpacking there to do what 
I don't know what's what have y'all seen that's been like helpful um like with some of your clients like when um if they like read something or if they if they see something that's helped them like is there some sort of like awakening moment that helps them get to somebody like you <laughs> or is it like mostly like something super tragic <laughs> you know like like an event or something yes really a lot of okay <laughs> wow well i see it's 12. oh yeah yeah um yeah we can i mean we can get to that i, I also know. say sorry angie yeah uh the three of us are particularly trauma therapists and okay. so i do think that that tends to be the funnel by which people come to do work with us. Um, okay. I'm, I'm guessing that's still, especially after the last couple of years, is probably true for a lot of clinicians, but it's hard for me to know what what is normative because people are usually at some sort of like desperate place um, yeah. at the time they get to me. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. I think I, uh, I have more questions and thoughts. I mean, thank yeah. you all so much. This is great. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for just asking us questions and talking with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. This has been so like, this has been so hopeful. Oh my gosh. I can't even tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, we'll see each other next week and we'll continue the conversation. All right, bye. Stay tuned for our next episode for the conclusion of this conversation where Angie will talk about the many layers affected by purity culture using her article as an example. In the show notes, you'll also find information about the upcoming one-day workshop, Unpacking Purity Culture, on May 22nd.